Is that Graham Goodwin I hear yet again on the other end of my internet telephone to record the weekend sports cars brought to us by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com, and a beautiful dog that you have that apparently needs to wear a bow tie? He does wear a bow tie. Uh, he does indeed wear a bow tie on his tag. Uh, yes, it's me, your regular UK stalker. Um, it's been a lovely couple of days here, just to the south of London, the UK, uh, planning as best we can with the ever-moving glacial mass of UK government's uh, policy towards travel. Uh, with the ELMS, uh, not this coming weekend, Easter weekend, but uh, following weekend down in Barcelona, and planning as well for the opening round just a couple of weeks after that for the FIWC. So lots going on, MP. We're beginning to get some of those TPAs filled on the uh, entry lists for the European and global season. Uh, how about yourselves? How's things stateside? Things are well. Big gap until the next IMSA race. So coming up with a content plan to not file stuff every day because I don't know if I could do that with the next race not arriving until uh, May, of all things. So just working on a plan to try and come up with somewhat frequent content to keep things ticking over. Uh, So just filed a story today about Colin Brown. And a pretty cool realization that with his victory as part of the core autosport team in the LMP3 class at Sebring, he actually achieved this one thing he'd never done before, and that was an endurance racing victory with his two main clients. That being John Bennett, team owner of Core Autosport, of which the two of them have been like peanut butter and jelly for many years, uh, championships, major wins, you name it. And then his other client, who up until this year has played outside of IMSA, outside of the ALMS, both places where John and Colin uh, competed, coming over, joining in as the endurance driver in this LMP3 program, George Kurtz who'd been plying his trade, learning as a uh, AM in what we'll always call World Challenge, SRO, America's GT Challenge, TC America, SRO, or whatever. Um, Yeah, pretty cool that Colin has been coaching the two of them for almost the same length of time, driving with John, I think, maybe one year. Or I shouldn't say Mm -hmm. driving with. Been working with John for, I think, one or two years more. But nonetheless, he's had these two AM clients, super successful in business, big aspirations for high achievement in motor racing to learn as much as they could from Colin. Again, the pro's pro. It's pretty cool to see him top of the podium. George now coming over from SRO. They're still driving together in SRO. George won three of the four opening races he competed in a couple weeks ago at Sonoma in the SRO uh, yearly curtain raiser there. But Pretty amazing to see that. So just put together a story about that, and it was kind of fun. Uh, seeing this kid who's, what, 30, 31, 32, who he still looks like he's 19, but uh, just realizing that his handiwork, and he's taken two folks pretty darn far in the sport, and guess what, standing atop the podium at Sebring? Um, yeah, pretty pretty amazing thing for him. So Excellent. Eh, other than that, lots of other stuff, yada, yada, yada. People don't want to hear about what we've already done in the past. They want to hear what we're going to do in the future. So, as the man who predicts the future of which categories we work through, 
on the weekend sports cars. Where are you taking us first, Graham Goodwin? I think the last couple of weeks, if not the last three weeks, we've kicked it off with IMSA. So this time, we'll shake it up. We're going to start this week with Weck Asm's Elms ACO. That's our code, of course, for ACO Rules Racing. And as is our want, uh, this is the point, MP, where you start chucking questions at me, unless there's something you want to wade in for yourself. Uh, no. Weck. Yes, <laughs> I like Weck Asm's Elms ACO. Uh, I hope that some of the potential lockdowns in France um, don't alter things in yet another negative way for let's hope playing endurance racing. So, yes, let's hope it doesn't. For now, let's kick things off. First-time contributor, Daniel Summersgill. Welcome to the show, Daniel. We're so glad to have you. Uh, send something in from Twitter, borrowing a name that we fashioned here. All due to your dog at LMDH. And the, what is the H? LMD Husky 2023. LMD Husky. Yes. Yep. Daniel, first time. Thank you. Is there any news on how the Peugeot hypercar program is progressing as he puts a lot of P's into his uh, query here? He says, it seems very quiet at the moment. And I've seen several rumors of the program being delayed until 2023. Do you have any hashtag breaking exclusive scoops to report? Not a huge amount. I mean, I'm not seeing dramas, I have to say, from uh, the world of Peugeot Sports. We know that uh, there has been a variety of steps forward. Uh, we know already what the uh, the uh, technical package is going to be because that was announced some little while ago. They've got the uh, driver squad uh, in place and uh, those guys have been working together with Peugeot to develop the concept of this car. Uh, I don't expect we're going to see or hear very much more about it until we get much closer to the summer and to Le Mans. Um, car is, of course, due to uh, have its competition debut at the start of the season uh, in 2022. And we can add there, by the way, just that little bit of information that came from uh, Sebring CEO, is it, or President, or uh, uh, Wayne Estes, uh, making it clear that they expect the WEC to be back as part of the doubleheader uh, Super Sebring in 2022, which means really rather oddly uh, the WEC debut for uh, the Peugeot hypercar, if things go to plan, should be at Sebring, which was the race that they should have been at um, when the... Uh, the WEC program was pulled before the WEC started with the team already set up in an awning and waiting for drivers to arrive for their pre-season test in Florida. So not seeing any dramas at the moment. Of course, things can change. And, you know, we are at the, the moment, uh, you know, health situation in France is not good. Uh, and as we record this, MP, there is indeed a speech underway from President Macron uh, with a variety of uh, measures designed to stem the flow of uh, COVID-19 in France, where things have not been great. But no, I'm not at the moment seeing any showstoppers. Uh, and I would expect we'll start to see a bit of a trickle, then a flow, then a, then a, and a torrent of information uh, from Peugeot Sport. would also mention that there comes a time in every brand new program being created where things go silent because they're mm-hmm. busy working. They've announced what they're going to do. 
there's obviously a known timeline of when they would want to be on track with whatever car uh, in whatever series. And there is inevitably a quiet period where folks just get plugged in and work and try and create and make design the thing, whatever it is. Uh, it just seems like we are more in the keeping quiet and working hard phase. Don't be surprised. You're not hearing much cause they got to go do the work so we can have the program phase. I think that's the technical name for it. Uh, Johnny Schultz, this I'm just saying, uh, Jacob Bame, consider this a shot across your bow in terms of obscure questions. Jacob, of course, being the king uh, of obscure questions for our show. John Schultz says, why does the WEC allow teams to put MotoGP style race numbers on their regular number plates? I mean, settle our racing's livery generally looks great, but blue green on orange is really not easy on the eye. Oh, when I saw this come in, I just mm-hmm. took a moment, almost took a knee just to uh, try and breathe all this in, process it, because, John, I celebrate you to have this occur to you and bother you and feel the need to get an answer. This is why we do the show, Graham Goodwin. I, I, Sports car gonna, racing is just all obscura. I'm going to massively disappoint you here, MP. We actually another question uh, from Cross.Main. That's a new one to me. So if you're a first-time questioner, you're more than welcome. This is a quick question for Graham Buck WC. Some never reveals these last weeks have shown odd number plate choices for the cars. This is a regs change or just the reveal of the car itself. I can disappoint you on two fronts, uh, MP. The first is to say... Actually, I think it is a bone of contention. And the second thing is, I completely agree with him. I think it looks ridiculous. Uh, it is a regulation change. And the regulation change is twofold. Uh, you've got to have the back panel for the color designated for the class. The number, you can claim any number you like between one and triple nine. Uh, and if two two teams want that number then one of them has to decide to pay for it and you can have it now in whatever font you like and i believe whatever font and whatever color you like and i'm here to say i think that's a mistake i think that will lead to uh, cars just looking just a bit i don't know i mean if, have, have stop it this? i'm looking at it now it's fine <laughs> You people are mental. What are you complaining? You guys need a harder life. If this is the thing that bugs you, it tells me your lives are going too well. You're mad. Or maybe not. Maybe you're totally correct, and I'm the one who's gotten completely wrong. I like it. Come on. I'd say something I don't say very often. Consider the TV commentator trying to read those numbers. Um, and okay, well, hopefully we're going to have um, we're going to have uh, rather different looking liveries aboard these cars. But I I can see there being some some problems afoot here. But let's hashtag wait and see. Just little addendum here. Looking at what they've presented for the livery on this number forty seven Chetelar whatever Ferrari. Is it something that looks like any other GT cars livery? A blue Ferrari. I realize it has the uh, Italian color stripey thing kind of down the middle, but uh, blue plus Dayglo green all over the. I'm just saying, number or not, I think it could run without a number, and you'd be able to go. Well, you know who that is. But we race at night at Le Mans. Just saying. (laughs) Who cares? It's not like we can tell what 
cars are what anyways at night? Although we did learn <laughs> during last year's broadcast, uh, thanks to our pals at Eurosport, uh, that you can indeed tell the cars apart by their headlights. Uh, right. Of which, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, all right, where are we going next? We are going to, well... <laughs> So here's a little funny observation. So we do the show each week. We entrust the fish-hating, pet-hating Ryan Kish to assemble yep. the questions for us in each category. He highlights the ones that he finds interesting. We have 13 questions that came in. In theory, we're done with Weck Allen's Wake Echo no, if we go so by what Ryan selected as interesting to him. So you're going to have to pick and choose from here and tell me what you want me to read, or, or shall I do so? But, yeah, oh, no, no, boy, go go, a tight go, filter. I mean, I'll, t- I'll take the next one in any case, which is Peter Stolley actually goes on to talk about this p- business around the uh, the Sebring, the Super Sebring plan, and asks what are the chances of getting another glorious spectacle like we did for the very first WC race in 2012, both series racing together. Um, I'll, I'll move aside from the kind of uh, in my own personal hell freezing over comment again. I don't think we'll see it unless and until there was a determination made about what happens with convergence. And even then, I certainly don't expect to see it in 2023. I think there is a possibility they might take a look, um, you know, at some point beyond that about, you know, what happens with Daytona, what happens with um, Sebring. But until that point, I absolutely see no prospect whatsoever of it, uh, Peter. And for lots of organizational reasons, and so, you know, again, consider the person who has to call that podium. The hat dance was going on until about three o'clock on Monday, let alone uh, Sunday. Uh, so the the reality as a spectacle, I kind of get it, although it was a pretty crowded out there. Um, as a practical way to get a common sense result for two different championships with a combined total of what then will likely be somewhere between six and ten classes uh no (laughs) it's the answer no in fact i go further hell no there we go let's see well i think matt hockey hawkins here we go yeah Uh, i saw this one and i'm like oh brother matt uh with porsche and audi announcing programs the end of last year, LMDH, which chassis supplier do you expect them to go with? And when do you expect them to announce these announcements? Well, Brother Matt, I have genuinely lost track how many times I've answered this question <laughs> in print and on the show. So I'm just wondering, um, as someone who submits questions regularly, do you listen after you submit the questions? Because um, I would think this would be one of those things that you've heard enough times to be bored with it but i guess not so i don't know um why don't you answer this because i've answered it and i thought this was a known thing right well first and foremost the for the second part of it when do we expect an announcement of these announcements because the uh time for announcing announcements uh, needs to be announced uh, beforehand so we can have a pre-announcement for those announcements uh so the answer is soon um, I think is the is the answer there. Matter of weeks and not months, I would determine. If it is a matter of months, it's a small number of months. Um, but the answer to the other uh, question about what they're going to announce is the announcement will be, I'm sure, confirming uh, that it will be Multimatic for the VAG Group cars. 
There we go. All right. Stephen Gate. If mm-hmm. Alpine were to win Le Mans this year, says it's feasible, given brand new yep. cars from Toyota and Glickenhaus and uh, increased temperatures in France in August. Uh, that's an interesting factor of why one form of car would die compared to others. Uh, but anyways, uh, w- would think would they think job done and not proceed with their potential new hypercar project you spoke of on the show a couple of weeks ago? So what do you think? If Alpine were to win, home race, home mm-hmm. everything, one and done, flip a blue middle finger to the future and exit it's a it's a good point i would like to think not and the main reason i'd like to think not is because it sort of isn't an alpine uh, program they are kind of adopting it to a degree but it's very much a signatech program uh, i still think and i again i've lost track of the number of times i've said this but i'll say it again the massive draw I believe, is twofold. One is the kind of level of competition they will have against true market competitors for their products, and that includes companies like Toyota, companies like Peugeot. The other one is that centenary race in 2023. It is a massive date in the diary um, and will become even more massive when you consider, by the way, the tsunami of interest there is going to be in attending live events on that kind of scale when we're through the current COVID nightmare. Um, That is only going to be building the level of excitement and anticipation for these very big events that sit somewhere on the literal event horizon. Uh, So uh, I think the answer there is it's a fair point. There might might be a counterpoint uh, at board level, but we've just won this race, if indeed they did. Uh, but I would like to think that the draw of being able to use this as some kind of technology demonstrator, if indeed Alpine did commit and that they committed to hypercar, as in LMH rather than LMDH, um, but also the fact this is by far the biggest race ever in France. And I would say again, I think it's right up there with potentially the biggest race event ever in the history of ever anywhere in the world. So that, for me, I think would be the one where uh, it'll tip the balance one way or the other. Um, Point well made. Uh, Don't think that would be the telling point, though, if you are going to invest, you know, quantum numbers of euro in a technology-led effort, which it would be if you went down the LMH route. Yeah. (laughs) Stephen. No. Uh, (laughs) Let's see. Gustavo Bamba. There's a big rumors of BMW going to LMDH. Mm-hmm. No news in the hydrogen project. Could mean that the big brand to assume a proper hydrogen prototype in Le Mans 2024 will be Hyundai. Recent news with the Dutch team running a hydrogen project, question mark. Have yep. you even heard of this before, Graham? Kidding. Guy yes. who wrote about it and whatnot. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah. what do you think? Um, so, right, um, what can we tell you about hydrogen? We can tell you that Toyota have made it reasonably clear that they are not going to go down that road for the time being. They don't believe that the um, the technology is mature enough yet for a full-blown um, program. Uh, BMW, I think, have blown hot and cold on this one. Um, it, they may still be involved. They may not. Uh, you made your point, uh, your position very clear on where they are on LMDH and uh, last week's show, and I absolutely agree with it that, uh, yes, they very much are in the room and have been for some time. Um, could it be Hyundai? Yes, it could. 
uh, I think it was a very interesting moment uh, that they're committing to the, I have to tell you, very excellent Forza uh, Delft, the University of Delft Technical University in, in uh, the Netherlands uh, project with their LMP3-based um, uh, hydrogen electric car. You know, very interesting to me, by the way, that we've got two parallel uh, prototype hydrogen electric uh, programs. One is the, the Dutch program we're talking about here. The other one, of course, is the H24 car that we will see racing this year in the Michelin Le Mans Cup. Uh, both are on the otherwise rather unfancied ADES LMP3 chassis. Um, but pretty clearly, there are beginning to be moves that are coming together to display this technology. Uh, we'll see the ACO's um, program uh, on the Michelin Le Mans Cup front. We'll see the Delta program uh, out and racing, I'm sure, if that's possible uh, this year with what we believe to be a much improved car on their front. Uh, and it's all working together, together with what other uh, tech work is going on in the background, uh, alongside the uh, the drivetrain work, train work that's being done by uh, the Green GT guys uh, and with the chassis work that is being done by Red Bull Advanced Technology in Orica to bring together the opportunity for manufacturers to bring a car to the Le Mans 24 hours capable of um, challenging for the overall win is what repeatedly we've been told by ACA President uh, Pierre Fion in 2024, so the year after the uh, centenary race. I think we're being teed up, by the way, for the potential for there to be a Garage 56 car, maybe for the centenary year. Um, I think that may be part of the plan. Whether we get there, it is going to be another hashtag wait and see. Strikes me, MP, we're talking here about options for manufacturers. We talked about BMW and MDH. We talked about Alpine and LMH. We talked about Hyundai or BMW or, you know, a variety of others maybe in hydrogen. It's been a long time uh, since those manufacturers, whatever the, spec, uh, the spec kind of nature of some of these packages, have had that level of choice about going racing at the very top level at the biggest endurance racing races of the world. And whilst I know the kind of spec nature of the chassis is putting a lot of people off and they're kind of very mild hybrid and the relevance of that technology, it does strike me at the moment that what we've got is something where there can be real choice for manufacturers, for OEMs, that I think do want to get out there and show what they've actually got in terms of, uh, of, of technology and competitiveness and to show off their brand, that there are three choices about going to race in the next, let's say, half a decade uh, at the Le Mans 24 hours at the very top end. And that has got to be good news. Jeff Easterling, you're the next contestant on the price <laughs> is right or the question is wrong or the answer is probably not all the way there. Uh, Jeff says... One thing I was disappointed about with the death of the Aston Martin Valkyrie Le Mans hypercar program was the loss of the Red Bull presence. It says, do you think that something like a bespoke hypercar program might be something Red Bull would find enticing? They've shown a love for wide ranging efforts. How about Le Mans? Uh, you'd like to think so, wouldn't you? And I, I remain kind of puzzled as to why we haven't seen something from Red Bull at a high level at Le Mans. 
as I think we've said before on the show, because of the the nature of the the discipline, um, endurance, and the nature of the product. Um, Red Bull. Jitters. But, uh, the, oh, sorry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Foul-tasting spelling stuff. Um, we do have, as we mentioned just briefly, um, around the hydrogen uh, regulations, some involvement from Red Bull Advanced Technology has been one of the key technical suppliers to the specness, if you like, of that package. But uh, no, I don't, I'll be honest with you, see them coming forward with uh, their own car. I think there might be the opportunity at some point in the future for um, a uh, tie-in with a manufacturer, but uh, that will have to wait. Wouldn't be remotely surprised, by the way, if they saw the attraction of the uh, explosion of interest that's coming in the next couple of years, whether or not we might see some further Red Bull involvement in. Uh, an avenue of the sport I strongly expect will be garnering a much, much bigger audience uh, if they play their cards right. But no, in terms of Red Bull coming as a, a factory entry, that's not something that I've seen um, as being very likely uh, move, moving forward from that. So um, sadly, I think the answer, no. Let's see if we can get a yes out of the next question, which comes from <laughs> Matthew Levine. Is Brabham still planning a GT program, or is that dream gone? Could a possible That's hypercar good. instead be coming from them? No, I think it's gone, and it's gone very, very quiet. I, I mean, again, look at the size of the Endeavor uh, from the Brabham Automotive uh, Organization, and then take a, a, a guess of what their um, – their uh, yeah, their uh, production schedule has been looking like through lockdown, where Australia has effectively shut themselves off from the world. I don't think it's probably been very kind to you. Certainly, I expect they're going to have rather less available, um, you know, in terms of the uh, the readies to spend on motorsport than they possibly had before. We are going to see one of those problems at least out there in racing um, in the if you like, second string GT championship in the UK. There's a Brabham BT62 signed up for the GT Cup, but no no GTE car and again, no immediate sign that they're going to be stepping up a notch uh, in the international uh, arena. Uh, quite a depressing couple of, a couple of answers, I'm afraid there. Sorry about that, guys. Next one from Pruitt Marshall, do you love me? Oh, and the answer is no there as well. Man, uh, Joshua Johnson. Uh, well, we got a couple from Damien Peachman. Will Lamont August, uh, with Lamont August, will there be more night yes. running? Yeah, well, June is the longest day. Uh, so, yes, there will be proportionally more, uh, Damien. And uh, Damien also asks if Fuji doesn't have for the WEC any idea what the backup is. I don't. Uh, there's been very limited opportunity for direct contact with LMEM over the last few weeks. Obviously, they've been very busy just making sure that things happen. Uh, but, uh, you know, at the moment, planning that uh, Fuji goes ahead, if it doesn't, I genuinely have no idea. It's going to depend on what other options I guess are available at that stage. Um I would hope it's not another race in Europe, but it may well be that that is where we are at that stage. The change to the Olympics uh, and the change, by the way, that's happened there is that that the Olympics in Tokyo uh, and across Japan will go ahead uh, this year, but with no international um, fans, uh, audience, it will be Japanese uh, attendees only. Uh, That shows ambition in actually having the opportunity to hold an international event that I think is good news for 
uh, events looking to go to uh, the shores of Japan. And I hope we can make it because it's a race that I love to go to. But if it doesn't happen, uh, well, you know, no clue at the moment what uh, plan B might be. And we're going to need to speak to Pierre Fionn and Frederick de Keen to find out what their thoughts are on that. We've not had that opportunity. Joshua Johnson says, could Porsche try for a garage 56 or whatever number it might be entry for their LMDH being fueled by that synthetic fuel they're looking to mm-hmm. produce here with Siemens beyond that. Could we see a drive to move to alternative internal combustion engine fuels ads? Didn't the Dyson team run run bio butanol successfully in mm-hmm. the past? Uh, he says, could they do that? And that's something like that in the future. And, was that one race they did that, Graham, too? I don't recall them doing the whole season, but I could be wrong. I think he's right. They did it. And, and you're stretching my memory there. Could they? Yes. Will they? Probably not, I think is the answer. I think there'll be other matters on the agenda for Garage 56. But, uh, you know, never say never. Um, alternative fuels. It's had its day, hasn't it, um, at the Le Mans 24 Hours and elsewhere as well. We regularly have had alternative fuels running in a variety of cars at the Nürburgring 24 Hours. Um, but uh, maybe it comes back. We'll, you know, It'll be interesting to see just exactly how they'll manage that. I think at the moment, though, they've got their hands full uh, managing, balancing, 11-T, uh, several uh, different uh, forms of car. My guess is they won't want yet another one uh, there see where else shall we go well we got one uh, more let's close Joachim bernardson says hey guys i know that all lmh and lmdh will run with only one body kit so my question is will they still be able to adjust the rear and front wings as long as they keep the downforce levels within the regulations uh, i think the answer is there will be things that are adjustable on the lmdh and on the hypercars um, within tolerances, you're absolutely right. The car has got to be within a performance window, not unlike uh, a GT3 car. And uh, adjustments are available to the GT3 cars, albeit within a homologated package. It's going to be much the same kind of idea. Uh, you've got to have the car in the window. They will make adjustments to balance. And then you are where you are uh, in terms of the, the variety of things that you're allowed to tune um to perfection uh and to you know adjust the car for whichever track you're racing at is the answer i can give at the moment Joachim. lots more questions to ask of the technical staff around the process of balancing in fact uh, just the piece i put up just before coming on to this um podcast mp talked about some of the things that have been done uh, to do with the balance of performance so far including uh, simulated tests between the simulated toyota and the simulated uh, glickenhaus which have established a couple of things we've talked already about the toyota being 10 kilos heavier than it initially was going to be but also that's shown up some uh, potential issues around the longevity of tire wear particularly for the rear drive glickenhaus the other one which i thought was a very interesting um uh process was that the um the toyota tested against or alongside an lmp2 
uh, Cool Racing's LMP2 at Paul Ricard fairly recently. And that is part of a process. And here's a new word uh, that you'll be hearing a lot of this season, I guess. Uh, and that word is stratification. And what that means is the not the balance, but the separation of performance between the hypercars and the LMP2s. That's all been a part of it. So balancing the hypercar, uh, the disparate kind of three hypercar uh, marks and uh, uh, well makeups of those, and also keeping that performance separation with the power reduction, and also uh, playing with the tyres. And that's going to be an interesting one to see how that one pans out. So that's what's going on at the moment, but loads and loads more to come before we even get a sniff and a whiff and a uh, hint of what's coming for LMDH. Um, time to move on, I think, MP, and it's time to move on to Impsa, I think. Um, let's crack on. Uh, the the biggest uh, thing that's on our listeners' minds at the moment is the story that's doing the rounds about Corvette. We talked about You're this last week. You're getting choked up again. You're getting choked up I again. I, I get very emotional thinking about Corvette, very emotional indeed. Uh, so I'll just pause this for a moment. And come back on after having a, a, a very loud cough that uh, you've not heard on mic, I hope. Um, we've got four or five questions here. In fact, it's not four or five. It's five uh, on the general subject of Corvette and uh, GTD Pro and the news that Corvette will be looking and now have, I believe, and you can probably tell us more about this in your answer, the agreement of the other manufacturers that intend to take uh, place a waiver to have some form of balance to the Corvette. But five questions. Jamie Bender, Ryan Terpstra, Daniel Summerskill. That's a new name uh, if you've never heard. the First uh, time. Daniel. Yes, never heard. Nikolai B. and uh, Gregor uh, Piotrovich, I think her name is there. Um, Jamie says, with the announcement, Corvette are going to be allowed to run the C8R and the GTD class without GT3 conversion. Can you explain how this will work? Will they just bop the C8R call it a day, or is there more to the process? He assumes that ABS will be added to the C8R. Um, Ryan says, how do you feel about them making a pretend GT3 or GT3 Pro? Um he says the only analogy uh, I can come up with is it's not even appropriate for an unpolished turd. Oh, thank you very much for that. It's wow. like we'll be experiment with this and pretend that's what it is and see if we like it for hashtag me personally. Don't think Ryan's a fan. Uh, Daniel says, with Corvette being given special dispensation to run a detuned CHR on the GTD Pro class, uh, by doing so, uh, do uh, Corvette have to commit to building a GT3 car for 23-24? And can other customers now bring a different GTE car, ask if they can run a detuned version? Nikolai uh, says, what do you know about whether the Waver GTD Pro C8R will have to be equipped with the APS? What's the lead time developing such a system? Are you expecting him to find a better name for the two classes than GTDM and GTD Pro? Why not use GTP and GTA? And finally, Records says uh, that the you, you've written that Corvette may get a waiver, and if he's correct, GTLM will not score points in Detroit. Uh, GTLM, of course, been added to the Detroit race. Is there any chance MC will chest, test chest uh, test any kind of uh, BOP that could be used on the C8Rs in 22 if they could race in GTD Pro? That's your lot. Speak to us on the subject of Corvette, GTD Pro, waivers, uh, ABS, whatever we can do. Okay, of the five questions, 
Yes, no. Yes, yes, no. All right, where are we going next, Graham Goodwin? Uh, all right, why don't we go reverse order? So GTLM will be competing at Daytona. Daytona, good Lord. Detroit for the first time in, I don't know, in a really long time. Owing to the fact that with Le Mans traditionally falling right after it, GTLM class being the manufacturer-rich class here, uh, no, they've been focusing on Le Mans test days and otherwise. So GTLM has not been on the Detroit schedule. With Le Mans being moved, they're now able to add them back in. Wasn't intended from the outset, therefore it's non-points. We know that the Chevrolet Grand Prix of Belle Isle, or whatever the thing is called, GM's the major sponsor of the event. The Detroit Belle Isle event is, when we say in the shadow of uh, GM's global headquarters, it's a slight exaggeration, but it's almost close enough to be vaguely true. I would say, Gregor's, the concept of IMSA saying at your home race that you haven't been at in a long time in front of your global headquarters and all the senior brass, all the GM fans, we're going to manipulate your performance, slow you down just to get a early look at what we would do for you next year. I would say those things do not conform with realistic expectations. I think if IMSA were to say, hi, we want to try and make your C8Rs perform like GTD cars at your home race that you sponsor in front of your global headquarters and all your senior brats while competing in GTLM, um, I would say Corvette would withdraw immediately. So the quick answer is not a chance ever, never, ever. Ever, ever, ever. Uh, so, no, that's what the offseason would be for. Um, Nikolai B. on the topic of ABS and some other things, I don't know what they're thinking in terms of how the Corvette will be detuned to meet GT3 performance levels. What does GT3 slash GTD do better than just about anything else in IMSA? Well, brake, that's one of them because of ABS, anti-lock braking system, electronics at work. Go super deep, bury your foot in the brake pedal, and let the electronics make things happy. You have pretty interesting interactions, Graham, from time to time in braking zones where whether it's under acceleration or cornering or whatever, every other type of car in the field is faster than the GTD entries. Brake zones, though, that's the one place where whether it's the pro in a GTD car, or even in some of the AMs, can look almost indistinguishable, and that's because of the electronics involved. Mention that because, as I understand it, there's a willful financial conservatism being applied to the short-term future with the CARs. What does that mean? And how does this tie into ABS and what IMSA might do or require them to do uh, to get the CARs aligned with all the other GT3 vehicles next year? What you and I had heard for a little while, right, uh, even prior to the GTD Pro announcement, we knew it was coming. We had heard about which manufacturers were interested and whatnot. 
thing we'd heard, thing we'd spoken about. I know I had mentioned it many times. We kept hearing, well, IMSA's the primary place where Corvette will compete, but they will certainly be doing Le Mans, or we hope, we expect they'll be doing Le Mans each year. Who knows if they'll add in some other WEC rounds. Maybe it's Super Sebring or whatever else, but there's a real situation where the majority of the year will be run under GT3 regulations for their program and a smaller percentage in GTLM slash GTE. Like Aston Martin's Vantage V8, which you've spoken about many times, the conversion time for a crew to go from GTE to GT3 with that car, had heard that that's what Corvette was planning to do. That was going to be the path. So we're going to use the C8R. We're going to come up with a conversion kit for GT3, use it ourselves, maybe customers, who knows, but at least for us, we're going to have a conversion kit and GT3 affy the car for the majority of the year, and then we certainly know how to go back to GTE slash GTLM when necessary when we go and run in WEC. Obviously learned here recently that that's no longer the plan. And so why? And this fits into Ryan's question a little bit, who was, I think his read was similar to mine of like, hey, I know you're the only major brand competing in GTE slash GTLM that doesn't have a GT3 car. You'd have to convert or build new, do something, but you're the only oddity in the group without one. Um, We would think you would make one and instead have learned that they have no intention of doing so. And so for the reason that I've heard, I don't know if it, I can't tell you if it's accurate, but uh, it's not an inexpensive endeavor. And the desire is, look, let's just try and slow down what we have instead of have to spend a lot of money to come up to make the car comply to a new formula. So a lot of all these factors to take in here comes back to Nikolai of, boy, if you're wanting to make sure that your GTLM car running in a GT3 class is not leaving anything performance-wise on the table, ABS is the one instant thing that jumps out as a huge want and desire. But that would then, Graham, conflict with what we've heard about trying to keep costs in check. If you're going to go as far to outfitting the cars with ABS for the first time, you've made a pretty significant step towards GT3. So if you were to want to go that far, I'd say just finish the journey and go all the way there. Since from what we've understood, both from Corvette and from IMSA, that there will be a waiver provided, I would have to believe some of these big steps towards GT3 won't be taken. We'll find out. It's just purely a guess at this point. But again, what makes a GT3 car perform better than pretty much anything else on track? It's electronic braking assistance. If you're not going to do that, um, I guess it's going to be weight. It's going to be a lack of power or reduction in power. It's going to be some arrow. Again, I, I don't know, but I would be vaguely concerned, Graham, about the CRR's ability to compete at GT3 levels if they're brought down performance-wise and then lacking something uh, in the break zone. As we've seen, just to close on this little sub, or the majority of the questions here on this topic, 
you either pull off a pass exiting a corner or into a braking zone. Uh, rarely do we see just the middle of a straight one car just randomly pick up a bunch of speed and go past the other one. It's either I got a better run off the corner or I am going past you under braking. One of those two. In one of those areas in GT3, the purebred, true, 100% GT3 cars would have an advantage. And I just wonder if the waiver simulate performance approach with the C8R doesn't end up being a little bit problematic. So I'm curious to find out what IMSA's thinking, uh, what Corvette is thinking, and what they ultimately choose to do. Uh, Also, uh, we have Nikolai who's asked, uh, are you expecting IMSA to find a better name for the two classes than GTD AM and GTD Pro? Why not use GTP and GTA? Well, uh, there is no GTD AM. It's just GTD, and they're going to call the pro class GTD Pro. So little quick note there. Uh, why not use GTP? Well, the P in GTP is prototypes. So since these aren't prototypes, that probably wouldn't fit. And GTA, I don't know. Uh, we're many years into GTD so I think folks have learned that enough that throwing a nomenclature change in on top of things um, might be yet another point for folks to complain about. Um, Daniel Summerskill, you ask about future? About, hey, so if they're going to come in, they're going to simulate GT3 with a C8R, does that mean they have to commit to a, a full GT3 car uh, in 2023, 2024, and, and whatnot? I don't know. I did not get the impression in speaking with IMSA that there was any future obligation in order to get the waiver. Okay, we'll grant you the waiver now, but you got to sign on the dotted line promising you're going to go GT3 in whatever year. Um, This might fit into the Ryan Terpster angle of... uh, what what is this? What's going on here? Um, is this IMSA's most popular team flexing its muscles, Graham? Saying, "Hey, <laughs> we're a big part of your show." Uh, when folks talk about the corrals at IMSA races, what's the brand they always mention first? The Corvette corrals. There are BMW corrals. There's Acura corrals. There's Hyundai. There's all kinds of fan bases that turn up with their cars and do a, a little corral and show. But what's the, the number one one? It's Corvette. Uh, so IMSA's most popular team, are they flexing their muscles and basically saying, yeah, we don't want to do the thing you're doing. Uh, if you want to keep us, you're going to have to give us special treatment. It's at least how I'm interpreting what Ryan sent in here. I know it could be taken that way. I know that I had that thought in the beginning a little bit, but... Um, at least in trying to get a little bit of flavor and tone on that, Graham, I was told that no, that's actually not it. Uh, there's nothing like that going on. It's truly a, we want to be with you, we want to play, we want to stay, just help us out a little bit and um, you know, let us do the mock GT3 with our uh, GTLM car. And beyond that, I can't tell you if there's any agreement for future full GT3 stuff coming through, 
but I would hate to think to finish Ryan's uh, submission here. I would hate to think that IMSA will have offered a waiver for, you know, we would have to assume a couple years, offer a waiver to race not being GT3, and then at the end of that decide to not build a GT3 car. So uh, I think that would indeed have me feeling like, mm, I don't know how cool that was, but we have no knowledge, Graham, as to whether that would be the case, will be the case, or otherwise. So we will have to. Let me use it. Hashtag wait and see. Um, I think that pretty much covers off Corvette. Uh, with one exception, which is uh, a kind of follow-up question from Alex Eichmiller, who says, what's the point in adding GTLM as a non-point scoring round to Belle Isle? He says, it seems like a really expensive way to get some marketing photos of the Corvettes in front of the GM headquarters. Yep. Uh, I mean, again, it's a Chevrolet Grand Prix presented by Chevrolet, featuring Chevrolet, Chevrolet pace cars, and Chevrolet Corvettes, and uh, Corvettes. So, yes, uh, at present, I only can think of three entries that would show up, right? The two Corvettes and the one Proton slash WeatherTech Porsche. Uh, we know BMW's in for the endurance rounds, unless they turn this into the six hours of Detroit. Uh, I don't expect them to show up. So, yeah, I think we're staring at three entries, unless some surprise happens uh, on that front. Uh, but, oh, you know something. Oh, you know something. Tell us, I'm breaking sh- exclusive scoop. I'm not sure where the tech are going. Well, me, okay. I'm not sure where- I'm not sure where the ticket going. Well, we can check that out. Anyway, let's move on. Last time um, I think Corvette was there was 2008, if I'm thinking correctly. Really? Um, and I believe, I'll have to look at my photos, but I do know that this was the internecine battle between uh, the Corvette factory entries and I think there might have been the Bell Motorsports Aston Martin there, Ooh. maybe. Uh, I'm currently trying to find it in my... That was a, that was a pretty, pretty car. Photo archives here. Let me see. ALMS Detroit 2008. Let me open up this. And we'll just keep this in. Look, again, you know, it's me. It means the show's not as good <laughs> as it could be because I participate <laughs> in it. Uh, let me see if I can find photos of an Aston Martin. Yes, indeed, there was a Bell 008 GT1 Aston Martin yeah, silver with blue and that was a lovely car. kind of a little bit of stripy pink on it. Um, I'm trying to find a photo that might reveal the names, the drivers um, in that hot rod. But anyways, there were three entries in 2008, and I think uh, that was the last time Corvette was there. Again, I'm probably wrong, but just mention that because at least for what I last recall in terms of seeing Corvette there... Uh, there was only a podium's worth of GT1 entries uh, for them to play against. So whether it's three uh, or just two come uh, the Detroit event, at least we're being a little bit historically accurate. Uh, Where else do we go, my friend? Uh, We're going to go on to, let's have a quick look here. Ben Gooding says, inspired by NASCAR's Bristol Dirt Race, where should IMSA race that provides something different and links back to their history? I was hoping he was going to ask when IMSA is going to do a race on dirt. 
and uh, that would be a true blast. Where should IMSA go that would pay homage? Maybe a little bit of a, a homer of an answer here, and it's not like crazy IMSA history, but it was a beautiful part of the schedule for a long time. Portland. Portland was once the site of IMSA slash ALMS showing up for a long time. And with IndyCar going back to race at Portland starting two years ago, three years ago, something like that, it seems like endurance racing is really one of its longstanding traditions that have not returned there. So that jumps out as one. Uh, I mean, there's some other Midwest tracks that IMSA used to go to back in the day that might be fun. Um, I guess that's all that comes to mind right now. It doesn't feel like that's a great answer as well, but Hey, it's me. Um, yeah. I mean, other than what I Fuji need to go to that invitational event that was held for a number of years back in the late eighties, early nineties. Um, let's do that. Why? I have no idea, but it came to mind. So I said it. Um, so there you go. Where else are we going next? Uh, what we're going to do first, by the way, is to recall who the drivers were in the Bell Motorsports car. Just a quick look. Chapman Ducate. I continue, to, I continue to Ter- look. Yes, I don't have yeah, any no, photos no. that show it. No, it was, it, was, it was. I don't think it was at Detroit. I don't think it went to do that race. It was. Uh, but, I'm staring at photos of it right now, brother. Uh, oh, no, hang on. Terry oh, so Borscheller, I can see the so team. It was, the, and, Chapman, and Chapman Ducote was in that uh, car as well. And also, uh, for... First round, did it? Was Antonio Garcia? He was in just in for the first round of the year. Yes. Um, yeah, I remember uh, recently looking at some photos from the Wheels Down Winter Test, and yes, there's indeed Antonio freaking Garcia driving an Aston yeah. Martin, which uh, might not reconcile with the brain right now, knowing how he's. Uh, what currently Corvette's longest tenured, I think, uh, or Must, is that Milner? No. Is that Milner? Uh, but yeah, it was Garcia, Dakota, and Jaime Camara. So we are all over the place with uh, that car um, back then. Right. Well, let's move on. Matt Niedert says he'd like to request an update from a friend of the podcast we haven't heard on from in too long, Mister Jeff Brown. Is he engineering the Bennett Brown Kurtz LMP3 car this year? I believe so. I think so. I hope so. But I don't know. <laughs> so I got to reach out to Jeff. He's on my list of folks I need to reach out to and just get some uh, additional podcasts going with him. Um, but, yeah, I think, um, yeah, this is an answer in pencil, not pen. I think so. I apologize. I should know that. Fair dues. We'll move on uh, to Andrew Baxter, who says, how lucky has the 48 got? by being totally unpenalized for their drive time violation. While they lost points to the championship they're not competing for, they scored full points to the Michelin Endurance Championship, the only race they're competing in. Yeah, and then what followed was a back and forth between Andrew and Jens Jensen, I, I believe, uh, on this topic, where Andrew, the uh, pedantic one who we love quite a bit, uh, was actually taken to task very slightly by Jens, who was saying, uh, could you point me to the place where the thing you said happened happened and pretty much had a counter-reality visited upon him. So uh, no real need to get into this. 
knowing that Andrew and Jens had a great time on Twitter reconciling it themselves. Fair enough, perfectly fine. Let's move away from the argument and let's move instead to Lance Snyder, uh, who asks, uh, is the Town Motorsport saga getting an Orica 07 tub and parts? Uh, you know, any other intended another sorry intended consequence of allowing one manufacturer to crush the competition so this is a bit of a a shot at orica i think it's more of uh, uh the um the consequence of the car hitting the wall very hard but i t- sort of take your point um any update on town motorsports that, <laughs> that, that your your <laughs> well your piece made it very clear mp that the issue was the cost of the parts required exceeded the cost of a brand new car, correct? Yeah, that is what Peter said. Peter Barron, the Starworks Motorsport team, that when you see the tower the tower name, it's actually Starworks running it all for uh, John Ferrano and whatnot. Um, okay, so you know, let's see. How do I phrase this or present this? Uh, had heard that, boy... We all saw it was a big hit, but the car did not look thoroughly mollywopped. Found out afterwards, yeah, indeed, boy, wow, a lot more damage done than uh, expected. And this is a big one. Heard rumblings that they were searching for a new car. Reached out to our pal Peter. Peter gave us a lot of fun and interesting stuff that went into a story on Racer. Not all of it, though, by any means. That's a typical <laughs> Peter conversation, by the way. Um, but yeah, said that the as they have found it, the sum exceeds the new car purchase price to replace everything. Said the greater issue, two issues experienced. One, unable to get a new car in time for the next race they're going to do. That would be the uh, Salem Six Hours at the Glen end of June. So, okay. Again, it's not like I know production times at Areca, but based on as it was presented, uh, there was no question in my mind that that question had been asked, and the answer came back as no, uh, we would not be able to get a new car manufactured into you in time. Second part to this was, so there's a lot of Areca 07s throughout the world, and they're clearly the number one LMP2 chassis in terms of success and as a result there's a lot of them out there and a lot of folks are uninterested in letting anything go so the other angle is to try and buy spare parts from areca 07 owning teams imsa WEC, etc and or good used spare parts right not the crazy high mileage wishbones or this or that that might fail but okay cool you know uh what can we find either used newish inventory that teams might have maybe from Areca as well. And for what I was told, big struggles there as well. Uh, either folks don't want to let them go or B, uh, sure we'll sell it to you at a crazy premium because we know these are hot ticket items, uh, so on and so forth. All things that came in as information received while searching for solutions to get a, uh, a new or get a, the program back on track to go at Watkins. We'll say that I just got a nice, nice email from a mutual friend of ours who um, knows a lot about Areca 
and uh, is often someone who can tell us, you know, uh, really sharp, 100% accurate things about Areca when needed. Uh, it was a very polite, what the hell? Based, and I'm paraphrasing. Uh, no. Uh, uh, hi, Rocky. Uh, a new car could absolutely be produced and delivered before the next race. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's ample parts to order as well. So uh what the hell <laughs> and so <laughs> i guess i have i had to ask myself i'm like okay should i have reached out to areka to ask and reconcile all of these things i guess i should have it just didn't come across as one of those it nothing came across as bs or a questionable thing and so again it didn't this wasn't some sort of like oh inside scoop or whatever it was more like oh you've called around you've done your due diligence sounds like things are going to be tough uh, you hope to get things reconciled before Watkins but going to be difficult I'll just say that um at least the primary uh influencer on that to happen being the people that make the things that are needed to get back on track said uh yeah there's no real issue here could make it all happen so um was just in a little bit of email back and forth you know said well maybe there's just a little bit of a disconnect between the person running the program and uh the driver slash owner uh and you know whatever whatever so i don't know what the answer is but I do know that at least getting some clarification from France, um, uh, whatever, a day or two after the story went up, that in theory there should be no problem of gaining access to a new vehicle and or the parts needed to go play race car. So I don't know if that answers Just... the question, but I know that it was a really interesting thing that I was like, oh, okay, um, I, everybody get together and talk uh, and then well, tell me what's right. Yeah, um, I'll just throw this in. That does rather beg the question, not why you didn't call Orica, but why they haven't. Or did they? And there was a there was a disconnect between people from that side talking to one another about who this. I don't know. Again, I, I was uh, well, embarrassed. I, but I, I just I, didn't think I, there was any real need. That I mean, it was such a no, non thing no. that I'm like, oh my god, do I really need to go and verify? <laughs> like, you know. Uh, the hey, we're switching from Areca to Dallara. Well, then you know I'd probably yeah. that that would be something where you want to get that verified. This just didn't stand out as something that really needed to go yeah, anyway. So, but my fault, my fault, my assumption. So, okay, let's ask move made on. out of you and me, or just me. Uh, um, Andrew Schmidt asks with Mazda's withdrawal from DP after this season, and with the package being so competitive, could a privateer he suggests maybe the Dysons run those cars until the regulation change? Understands the factory withdrawal but could they delay their Mazda museum reservation? Keyword here being could. Could they? Yes. Would they? No. Um, I can't think of any team that is not currently participating in motor racing a storied team at that like dyson that would ramp up a program for one year and then have it go away uh so could yes would no yeah fair enough simple as that uh ricky zagata asks with testing for the gen 7 stock car ramping up is there any more talk of having the car do exhibition runs during imsa weekends 
haven't heard anything on this, Ricky, in a while, it feels like, where I think we might see some something spool up here a little bit is continue to hear that IMSA and their upcoming kinetic energy recovery system. We mentioned this on the show before, Graham. I've heard that there could be some reliance on IMSA by NASCAR to learn about how that uh, curse system uh, works and deploys. And, you know, not like they don't know what the systems are, just saying, hey, this is now going to be in our general hemisphere of racing in the endurance racing series that we own. We're going to be going hybrid here sometime soon in NASCAR. Uh, let's check it out and monitor and see. And who knows, maybe we use the same system. Who knows? Again, don't know. But I, I think if we get to that place, Ricky, where NASCAR is really looking into IMSA, see how uh, the hybridization goes there, uh, could I see some Gen 7-ish type stuff, the new stock car coming over and running a little bit and, and or IMSA uh, having some involvement there through the hybrid side and helping them get up to speed on the stock car side, possibly. As for exhibition runs, again, I don't know, but I'm just trying to think of the one area where you go, okay, here's realistic possibility for crossover between IMSA and NASCAR and their new vehicles. Okay, moving on. And uh, final couple of questions in uh, the IMSA section go to Ed Joris. Uh, how many cars do you foresee in GTD Pro for 2022? Do you think we will have more total GTs in IMSA than we have this year? It's the first of two. I do think the overall number will be up. I just don't think it's going to be a big number up, Ed. Mm-hmm. Don't have a, a great feel yet for what the GTD Pro numbers will be next year. I think six, seven, eight would be a pretty darn happy number. I don't know of that much more. So we're expecting the aforementioned pair of Corvettes. We're expecting two BMWs, whether that is factory uh, alone could there be a turner aspect to that could there be three again i don't know how the numbers are made whether it's only factory or factory plus long-term you know affiliate uh, with turner coming in with one as well i expect i think faf will be there with one what i don't know is does that take one out of gtd uh does turner coming or if turner were to come would that take one out uh, or their car out of GTD. I don't know. I don't ever want to see the M6 <laughs> GT3 go away. I mean, that thing's, you know, that thing is a, a living dinosaur that is still doing amazing <laughs> things. So I just want to see that keep going. Uh, but, you know, could they show up with um, uh, a brand new uh, BMW GT3 base car? Uh, would certainly think that's a possibility. Um, so what would we be at? That would be six ish. Uh, Reese, obviously, if they were to continue, would need to be GT3. Uh, which, they, which, of course, they can do with the same Ferrari. Uh-huh. That um, is a convertible car. Lamborghini, I hear about, could be there with one. Um, so I think we would have one, maybe two Porsches, uh, at least one Lamborghini. 
two factory Corvettes, I think two factory BMWs. Again, throw in some of the high-quality, high-caliber uh, GTD teams, uh, hopefully adding a pro-pro vehicle for clients uh, slash uh, with a little bit of help from the factory. And I could see, Ed, how we're minimum six. I don't know if we get beyond eight for most rounds, but if we're at six, seven, eight, hey, that's better than three that we're going to have at a lot of rounds this year. So then we'd just say the first year is going to be critical on where it goes from there. Bit of a obvious statement to make, but we would expect the racing to be very good. That's, I don't think, a real question, but you start to hear about costs. What is it? Is it way more than expected? Is it kind of in line with what was expected? Just that's where you start to get a feel, Graham, for, okay, we've seen it, and what is it really playing out to be financially? Is this something that makes sense to teams in GTD or LMP3 or who knows? Teams in other classes say, hey, uh, maybe we could get an entry going there too. So I don't think any of that would happen before the inaugural season's completed, though. Okay. Uh, the final uh, question is again from Ed, and he says, uh, if uh, IMSA wants to separate the GTD Pro and GTD AM fields on track, why not just mandate that every GTD AM race starts with the AM driving? A few laps after the start, you should have a significant separation, two packs, right? Right. Right. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know well, if I have much more than that. Right. Um, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Look, I think we're done. We'll get that done. Um, right. Can we have a quick um, trot through uh, with some fun and with some general? Let's just start with fun. And you've got those questions in front of you. Why don't we do just a quick grab bag there before finishing with a few general? You want me to start with this one? No, I want to read things to you. Uh, <laughs> just trying to find stuff here. Uh, here we go. MK Usair, I think, unless I've managed uh, to mangle the last name, probably. It seems a GT2 and GT2 has died on the vine with only Audi and Porsche building cars for it. Am I wrong in that thinking? Yes, you are wrong in that thinking. Um, So you're right that it hasn't taken off yet. The timing was pretty horrible um, uh, pre-COVID. It hadn't taken off in 1920. They were ready to relaunch, um, having lost... AMG, who were definitely looking at it, having lost McLaren, who were absolutely looking at it, but realized that the investment they'd have to make against return in re-engineering their cars just didn't make sense, or others too. Uh, but there are actually four cars at the moment looking set for GT2 competition. Uh, Audi and Porsche, without a shadow of a doubt, are the two highest profile. Uh, there is a version of the Super Trofeo Lamborghini, which is now available for GT2, and that car uh, was tested against the Audi uh, at the second day of the GT World Challenge Europe test days at, um, at Paul Ricard. And the fourth car is the KTM Crossbow, the GT2 version of the new GTX version of the KTM Crossbow uh, with, uh, I think it's an Audi engine in the back of, of that. So four options for uh, teams to come forward and choose and um, with a pretty hard separation now from GT World Challenge Europe. In fact, no AM-class cars in the full season uh, entry lists with the two options now, with the uh, the Rebellion Series, these three 
long distance races and also the GT2 European Series coming forward. So hopefully, uh, for fans of extremely powerful GT cars, um, there'll be some action to watch uh, as we get into 2022. But you're absolutely right, by the way, that this has taken a little bit of time in the coming. And for US, it's the uh, – let me get this right. I, I try to remember exactly. Is it GT – America, it's called, where you can have GT3, GT2, and GT4 cars. I think that's the product that's available in the US. Yeah. So that's, that's the answer on GT2. Uh, uh, where, where, where else do you want to go? Uh, Damien Peachman, by the way, asks, will Super GT have an international broadcast in 2021? To be determined. Um, and I think this is the conversation at the moment between a couple of potential broadcasters for it. But the, where Super GT appears to have rather shot themselves in the foot is the reduction in the international drivers that are actually uh, taking part in Super GT and for that matter in Super Formula uh, this year and I think Super Formula is it one non-Japanese driver this year and that's Tatiana Calderon um, uh, I think is the answer to that uh, future uh, particularly niche pub uh, pub quiz but uh, the answer is there are still discussions going on those discussions as I understand it are not yet concluded uh, okay. Oliver Trevavas, the Trevavasaurus. Uh, we haven't heard from Oliver in a little a while. while. Not for a while. What's, what does Oliver want to know? Something revealed short. While back was Ineos working oh, with, with Hyundai on hydrogen projects. Do you okay. see this as a stable source of funding for a sports car program for the brand? And says with Jim R's interest in historic sports events plus Merck F1 sponsorship, Maybe maybe add a Le Mans win to Latour win. Wow! Because of course, Ineos with the uh, Tour de France team. Look, it's uh, there's a huge amount of potential funding there uh, from the Ineos uh, organisation. Um, would it be a refreshing one to see? Well, in this case, a rather boutique and rather different um, OEM, Ineos, the UK conglomerate that is about to launch its own SUV, the Ineos Grenadier, to be built outside the UK. Uh, but uh, could I see them coming into endurance racing? I'll go back to what I said earlier in the show here, which is we've got multiple uh, high-quality OEMs coming into sports car racing in the next two, three years. That, if people are sensible, if people are clever, if people are kind of mobile in their thinking – um, could open up the opportunity to all sorts of marketing opportunities, media opportunities, and collaborative opportunities. And would Ineos be on my shortlist of companies that I might want to be uh, dropping a quick line into to say, hey, you interested in, in working with us on this really cool thing? Look who else is coming to play. The answer is yes, of course. Why wouldn't you be looking at sources of potential funding and for, uh, not just funding, but also technical partnerships as well? So the answer is, uh, do I know anything on this front? No. Would it make sense that that would be a strategy that might pay some dividends? Yes. There we go. Let's have a quick look here. Uh Daniel Summerskill says, are you surprised by the number of entries for the DTM? What would the new look series need to accomplish to be seen as successful reboots? Hashtag me personally. Series has attracted more teams, could still be seen as just another GT3 series without the razzmatazz of the old DTM. Tend to agree. I think uh, we've said it before. 
um, with no doubt in my mind whatsoever, and every call I make on this uh, reinforces the point that what's happening at the moment is ITR, Gerhard Berger's organization that uh, runs the DTM, are calling in a huge number of favours uh, to assemble this grid. I think we're up now to about 16 cars, something like that. Um, we've lost a couple of three along the way, uh, including, by the look of it, two of the McLaren teams. Uh, Jensen Button's team will not be doing DTM uh, this season. Uh, they're doing other things. And uh, it looks to me as if the 2Cs operation, the Bahraini UK uh, team, uh, they declared they're entering two McLarens and they're now selling those McLarens. And there's certainly no sign that they'll be added with AMG. Grid looks pretty nice, pretty good. Is it sustainable? I think what it's going to come down to is what is the product like? What When the teams turn up for round one or round two, what is the paddock product going to look like? And are they going to get any kind of sensible return on the very substantial investment that's going to be required here to field full house GT3 car? but with only one driver, and in very many cases, not a paying driver at that. So the reality is the experience in that paddock and the return on investment in terms of the exposure that you get for whatever partners you can draw, really better um, produce the goods here, or this is going to be a very short journey down the road indeed. I hope DTM can survive. Um, I think there are real opportunities in the future, whether or not that's with the electric GT um concept that they've been showing or whether or not this might be an outlet for something like sprint lmdh in three four five years time no reason at all why that shouldn't be a part of the thing but for now i think it's it, it it's it's pretty good um it's not brilliant it's pretty good but it does strike me at the moment of being pretty edgy Let's see is there anything else that jumps out here uh doug bonham mm. some of graham's recent pieces on historic racing can we still call it that mentioned that many of the younger fans recognize cars like peugeot's 908 from video games and simulators despite how detailed and wide-ranging lineups uh in games are there's still classic sports cars which haven't been featured as much as they should be says if you could choose one car to be added to every game moving forward what would it be says my answer would be the All-American Racers Eagle Mark III, which I've never seen in a racing game, unlike the Toyota GT1, which is in every game. <laughs> um, I think it's certainly very interesting. The, the, the comment that, uh, that Doug actually pulls out came from David Porter, uh, who owns one of at least a couple of Peugeot 908 HDI FAPs, the V12 engine cars, they're out there. And there's one big races in those cars as well. Uh, oddly enough, was at Donington Park last week with the handing over what is the second 90X now in private hands. Uh, so those cars are getting out there. But it was David that actually said uh, there's a young man taking a huge interest in his car. And when he actually finally had the conversation with him, Indeed, it turned out he'd never seen this car. The only thing he'd ever seen was the virtual version. Cars I'd like to see out there. You know, I like the quirky. I like the the kind of the GTs, the Spikers, the Morgans, the TVRs. I like all of that kind of stuff. I'd also like to see a couple of the kind of quirkier LMP1s from back in the day that maybe didn't have too much of a... Um, too much of a career. Something like the Lister Storm LMP. That's exactly uh, what I was going to say. 
There you go. The pro trans, things like that. They're really quirky, edgy oddities that, that, that probably just didn't have their time. You know, I'd like to see the Pescarello Zero Three uh, out there with its real aerodynamic properties. Um, you know, it's the, and you wouldn't, we're never sure when you arrived at a corner whether or not it was going to make the corner or basically send you through the cloud base. Um, I'd like uh, like to see something like the Aston Martin AMR1 with its real performance characteristics that you don't know whether or not the car's going to grenade its straight six uh, every 30 or 40 meters. That's what I'd like to see from. Uh, from racing, I'd like uh, from virtual racing. I'd like to see these cars with their real-world opportunities for how can we put this drama? Let's have a quick look for one for you, good self here. Could I add one in? Would that be? Of course okay? you can. Yes. Uh, let's go two obscure ones because I love obscure. Let's go with a. 86 Argo Mazda Jim Downing Camel Lights GTP Lights car. I don't, I don't know if that's ever been in anything ever. And let's stay similar era a couple years later with the Dodge Daytonas from Ooh. IMSA GTU. Which Ooh, were, GTU game. Yes, which were bizarre. Cal Choquette. Uh, driver with one of them, Dorsey Schrader, who would go on to uh, much bigger things afterwards. They would go, man, they changed so many things on those cars. Uh, we had front-wheel drive, four-cylinder turbo. We had non-turbo rear-wheel drive on those. Um, I loved them. Got Saw pretty much all versions of them. Just a wacky, wacky thing. One of these, Graham, one of these days, Graham, when I have lots of time and nothing else uh, distracting me, I want to do a, a deeper dive on uh, the GTO and GTU cars of IMSA. GTP has been written about to death, and there's many amazing books about that. Uh, so glory be uh, all those GTP books. <laughs> uh, to my knowledge, no one's done a comprehensive GTO, GTU, GTU, and there's a lot of amazing stuff and some wicked shit boxes where you go, what? Um, well, I, and, I'm, yeah. looking, I'm looking right now at a picture online of Don Knowles' Dodge Daytona GTU, which is missing its entire front end um, with the exception of the fender. So it's the fender still there with a chunk out of it, and then no front body work at all all the way back to the firewall. I believe that's actually uh, how they ran. That was standard spec. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, no, or maybe not. I think I'm wrong. Um, oh, me. What else are we going to go with You here? tell me. We... Uh, do we graduate down to uh, uh, fun, or what do we do? Let's, get down to, let's, let's uh, pop down to fun, because my uh, my – um, my clock is ticking down in terms of how much Trudy will take of me actually being down in the office. Uh, let's go with um, what's been flagged up here by Ryan Kish, who, by the way, has got uh, something to answer for later in this that section. That guy is pretty uh, flagged up, I must admit. Absolutely. Uh, really good question, he says. We'll be the judge of that. Right Turn Lover says, is there a race you'd like to re-experience but in a different role? Hmm every I, I, and as I, a driver i mean 
I, I, restricting myself to, well, I, no, I first with my son, um, and I like to record that race. That would have been cool, uh, without a shadow of a doubt, because there was lots of drama uh, there. The 2011 race, I think I'd have liked to watch that from trackside. I think that would have been a cool thing to follow the the ins and outs of the fight between all the world's Peugeot 908s and the single remaining uh, Audi coming through the night into daybreak without a shadow of a doubt. Um, and I'll tell you something, actually, following that race, if we, if we can just rewrite the roles for ourselves, from the Audi garage must have been pretty special. Uh, after the dramas of the uh, the exit of the race in massive dramatic fashion of Alan McNish's car and then um, Mike Rockefeller's car, to watch that just emerging uh, as part of that operation must have been quite astounding. What say you, MP? I'll go in this angle because, boy, as it was recounted to me, it was scandalous. And it, it happened beneath you and I, actually, or not, not too far away from beneath our feet. That would be the 2016 24 Hours of Le Mans, mm-hmm. where I was there as a monkey reporter. You were there as a monkey reporter and talker into microphones. I think I did that, mm-hmm. too. Anyways, we were there, media side. Well, we heard about taking place midway through late in the race was some really, oh my God, is that truly happening type stuff between the GTE Pro Ford team on its debut and Risi Competizione. Oh, yes. Yes, and yes, yes. there, how should I present this? We'll call them rumors, although uh, uh, that's a bit of a facetious tag to apply. Uh, had heard about some of the... Whether it was cronyism or I don't even know how to describe it, but the tales that we heard recounted of the, if you don't pressure us for the win, we won't try and pressure the ACO to call in your Ferrari because what was it like the, the light light panel wasn't, yeah, right there just from some of what I heard and I wasn't there. We were there, but we weren't in the garage. Yep. Uh, there was some nastiness going on uh, between, let's say, it involved two camps. I never heard that it was a two-way volley. I heard that a lot of it was thrown one way of the much smaller independent team. I would love to have been a mechanic, an engineer, a something on one of those two teams to have heard it and witnessed it. Now, granted, uh, you know, the refueler is probably not getting invited into these high level conversations between teams, but I would love to have been in one of those two garages when they were taking place to have heard what actually went down because as it was presented, Graham, Oh boy. Um, I wrote about it and had this, had the story one of the very few ever in my career receive the red light not the green light uh because there were concerns that uh there was just concerns that putting all this out all of this out 
um, might lead to some bad places. And so it sounded like some real not great stuff about a small team in a position to potentially ruin the big debut and all the things that went down to try and apply pressure and leverage and some other stuff to make sure that that team quote stayed in its place. So even Rocky wants to uh, hear about it, but that would be my answer because boy, that sounded like a big old stinky event going on beneath our feet. And I would love to have actually witnessed it and gotten a better account. Well, I'm going to go with one quick one from Joey of the Priuses. His first question for Twisk, but he says here, it's very important. In the <laughs> iRacing 12 Hours of Sebring last weekend, a young driver was unable to participate. As a result, our team failed to win the race. That driver's name, Ryan Kish. What is the appropriate course of punishment for him? Well, first of all, uh, he is a fellow Californian, but I don't claim him because he's a ginger. So I believe that's just written into the American Constitution. <laughs> Third Amendment, I think, something like that, something after free speech. I forget exactly. Um, he is, though, that's your tribe, right? He, he's he's part of your camp. So, uh, Dad, how do you punish? How do you punish uh, Ryan Kish for not showing up, unable to participate? What, were you covering a race last weekend? I mean, you know, what uh, are you going to do? I think no Chipotle for you for quite some considerable time, Brian Kish. His favorite so-called restaurant. That's the, that's the answer. Two to go. Uh, and I can see that my dinner is being taken out the oven, uh, the other end of the garden by a very angry Mrs. Goodwin. You uh, have an so oven Goodwin, in the garden? No, I'm the other end of the garden. Oh, okay. Uh, John Day says, Hey, MP, hey, GG, hope all is well in your world. Just for fun, Le Mans 2023, the OEMs and customer teams are all mandated to run heritage liveries for the centenary edition of the great race. Which liveries would you pick for the cars and why? Let's pick a couple each. Which two do you want to go with? Just <laughs> I'm such a dick. Just so... <laughs> Our favorite Eurosport commentator would have something to ramble on about for hours. We would absolutely need to have at least one of the vehicles in the 100th celebration of uh, the 24 Hours of Le Mans to run in a Bentley blower, Bentley boys livery. <laughs> Noting that there are no Bentleys we think of that are going well who knows we'll see uh if there is a bentley in the race great perfect got to do a bentley boys thing even though again the year but anyways um and if not we need someone else to just take a bullet for us put do their lmp2 car in a, a bentley boys retro livery and whatnot hopefully we'll have uh, andy blackmore do the design on that just so whatever his name uh can just when for no reason whatsoever each year he brings up bentley blower stuff now there'll be a reason we would need a camera in whatever booth he's in because we never get to see these guys right we never get to see him we need to have a, a camera in the booth or whatever it is for the first time that his he, his eyes lock onto the bentley boys bentley blower livery he might explode from excitement 
we got to see this. And then what are we going to get as a, a prize to ourselves? 24 hours or however long he's able to stay awake if he hasn't exploded already. Just wow. every time on air, nonstop Bentley Blower references. This is the gift to ourselves. It's got to happen. I think for, for Audi, I'd like not to see them do a heritage um, LMP livery. I'd like to see the car in the Trans Am livery. I think that could be really cool. We've not really seen that traditional Audi sports color scheme on an LMP car, have we? Um, I was thinking more 1986 Group B yeah, 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 Audi yeah. throwback yeah. livery. I thought that, that, that kind of black, gray, and red, or the yellow and black, um, that would be very cool. Uh, that would be very cool indeed. That that I would like to see, I have to tell you. So that's that's Porsche and Audi covered off. What about Acura? Hmm. Yeah, there's not a lot there uh, that hasn't just, been explored. Just, just, a bit, bit, just have big Acura written across it. Big Acura. Well, but it'd be Honda to... in Europe, though, wouldn't it? Yeah, but just, yeah, yeah. Well, same typeface. People but, won't notice. Yeah. Fine. Uh, there was a lovely, and this is obscure, again, if we're just going way the hell out of left field. Oh, yeah. So recently with the Acura Team Penske program, they did a throwback for more than a year with the old CompTech livery, that being white, with the day glow orange, uh, orangish red, whatever color it was. So that we've seen done a number of times. There aren't many uh, Acura liveries from back in the day that have not been brought forward because they didn't have a lot of variants. But there was a gorgeous CompTech. This is a Honda engine in IndyCar, but again, this is you know uh, the team that really brought Acura in, and it was there was a purple, and I think it was like 1996. It was kind of a purple with a red and white as well. And again, I know we're just stretching the limits of of how the hell it applies, but of all the things that might happen that could be cool if Acura slash Honda were to appear at the hundredth Le Mans in LMDH, uh, let's just go super left field into the team that made their name and brought them into pro racing back in 86 or whatever it was from about 1996 when that team running a Honda motor, not an Acura in IndyCar uh, did something that involved purple. So yeah. (laughs) Um, I'm going to really quickly, Toyota, I want the number two livery from 1999. I don't remember what that was. The GT1 livery, all red, all red, all red. That's what I'd like to see. And Peugeot, I'd like to see the 905 livery on that car. Huh. That'd be cool. Ferrari, completely left field, by the way. Um, one of my all-time favorites Ferrari liveries, not a factory livery at all, is the chromed clear water racing livery. Oh, there we go. <laughs> That'd be cool. But there you go. That's, That's as much as I can give you at the moment for those that have so far declared. Let's uh, close. Gonna... Yeah, let's close on one for the Jamie Bender. Oh, yeah. Final one up. <laughs> Uh, this is definitely, as he says, a bit of fun. Sticking to Imps and Whack, what is the worst-sounding race car of all time? Not looks or performance, just the sound. This is in my short time as a fan. Found the 4GT and the Lexus to both Ooh. sound uninspiring and dull, but I'm sure you two have something much worse in mind. I quite like mind. the Lexus. I quite like the Lexus. It's a weird, hushed 
thing. Yeah. Like, uh, it, it's the only car in the WeatherTech Championship that sounds massively muffled. Hashtag massively muffled. Uh, and yeah, that's what's always stood out to me with it. I don't dislike its sound, but it's yeah. very clear that unlike every other car, there's been significant effort made to bring the volume down and mm-hmm. the the impact down. Even some of the cars that aren't the loudest, they still have a force to them when they go by. Lexus, for hashtag me personally, never has. I know one you don't like. What's that? In fact, there's a lot that you don't like, and that's the LMP3 cars. You don't like that sound, do you? Yeah, it's a bit, yeah. But for, right, for me, it's the Turbo V8s. Um, and in particular, and only because you've got to compare it to what came before, I find the Ferrari 488 is the least inspiring. No, it's just soundless. It's it's just it's so quiet and coming after the four five eight which was a terrific sounding car, it was such a disappointment. You know that the the M eight is a bit yeah that's not great either. Uh, I agree with you on the four GT although the four GT at least had little bits of drama in its uh, uh, arrow, um, uh you know uh, menu but uh the ferrari is just it's a yeah it's a ferrari for god's sake it needs drama and there's none for your mama yeah <laughs> uh probably well i know you mentioned well you did mention um jamie you mentioned imsa and wex so i'll just have to go back to imsa and i mean i i appreciate the sound because it's so unique but the, the worst sound because it involved pain without a doubt mazda's twin rotor 13 bs the engine code the 13 bs found in gtu cars back in the day 80s uh 90s a little bit i guess too but uh really uh, gtu cars loud but the camel lights cars the jim downing mazda's just it there's a blaring sound to them and it took a long time to bring it down to under 500 decibels or whatever crazy (laughs) thing that just makes your head implode truly the oh my god please make it stop sounding race car that's that i can think of of all time i've heard a couple of v8s um gtp there was uh in what 1988 there was a spice 88 pontiac i believe it was a five liter v8 pontiac that was um running in gtp and it was un truly unmuffled not like any of the other cars really had mufflers but this is truly a what how when time and space warping type experience i remember at sears point the commentator had mentioned that the car registered at 118 decibels wow which is you know again just your eyes start to cross and you start to pass out and it was crazy how painful it was going by but at least that V8, higher revving V8, 
there was a little bit of quality to the sound, even if it was totally something that would make you go deaf. The 13Bs, especially in prototypes, not only were you going deaf, but it just killed your ear. It wasn't a pleasant thing. Um, and I've worked on a lot of race cars, mostly open wheel with uh, twin rotor Mazda 13Bs and whatever, and they've had mufflers on them. And, you know, they're, it's a very unique sound, but uncorked for 2, 6, 12, 24 hours. Ouch. This is why we need to say thank you. And we have to say it loud. Thank you! To all the uh, volunteers and corner workers that that worked IMSA races in the 1980s in particular. Because uh, they probably can't hear. And it's all because of uh, the damn Mazda Camelites cars. So that's my answer. And uh, I am sticking to it. Graham Goodwin, take us home. Let's take us home. And thanks again. Thanks again to all of you for sending in such a high quality of questions. Uh, as well as, you know, uh, new faces and the guys who keep coming back uh, week in, week out. You really, really do need to get out more. But for now, I'm going to say goodnight. So is Marshall Pruitt. I'm Graham Goodwin. He's Marshall Pruitt. We can say thank you to Cooper Tires, to the Justice Brothers and TorontoMotorsports.com. Uh, join us next week for the next edition of the Weekend Sportscast, where I'll be preparing to drive through what I hope I'm still able to drive through Europe down to European Le Mans Series season open down in Barcelona. Until then, good night. We'll see you next week. Go eat your dinner. <laughs>